שירי קטן, הייתי לחם יבש היינו אוכלים. היינו עניים ממש. אנו מגיעים בצער רב על פטירתו של מרן הראשון לציון, מועצת חכמי התורה, הגאון הרב חיים עובדיה יוסף. History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And that was a beautiful uh, song. I remember when it was put out and very well said by Yaakov Shweki because the subject today in honor of the yard site of Ravadi Yosef is going to talk a little bit about Ravadi Yosef and the rise of, of uh, the Sephardi Jewish community under his leadership um, in recent years. And um, it's just the, the perfect way to flow in is with that feeling that, the, that, that people had for him as really a father and an unparalleled leader. And it's really kind of hard to exaggerate um, the accomplishments of Rebovadi Yosef. It's, it's hard to... You know, over, over speak it, um, both in many areas, in halacha, in uh, leadership, in politics, and most of all, what he had set for himself as his uh, primary goal and carried it out through his entire life was to bring back the pride to the Sephardi community. To he always called it laharzir atarali yoshna to bring the crown of glory back to where its proper place was um, in in the Sephardi world. And he accomplished his goals. He's someone who was able to look back at the end of his life and pretty much every goal he set out to accomplish, he did. Amazing. Like I said, it's, it's, like, it's hard to overestimate. It's hard to find another person who is so accomplished in, in what he set out to do. Um, by the time, you have to understand... In the the world the in the world that he grew up in and lived in and acted in in his early years to appreciate what his accomplishments were, um, especially in regards to uh, in what was considered in the rabbinic world in the leadership the leadership world of the of the orthodox or ultra orthodox community in Eretz Yisrael um, about how about how the Ashkenazi way of things simply ruled and and the Sephardim just had to go along with it. And by the time Erbovadia was in his later years, 
the whole the whole map had changed. Uh, the Svarim were forced to be reckoned with, and he was the Gadol Hadar, or one of the Gadol Hadar, one of the greatest leaders of his generation, and both in 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 Sfardi Rabbanim, in the Sfardi Psak, in the needs for this, both spiritual and physical needs for the Sfardi community. It's all because of him. Mainly, mainly because of him, it could be attributed to others also. Um, definitely, not, not, no one can do it totally on their own. But, but um, the he was definitely the main mover and shaker in this regard. And uh, it's 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 uh, important to understand the uh, his accomplishments. Now, very often um, we focus in the story of Rebovadia and the Sephardi community in Israel on Shas, the political party, which is a later story. And what I want to maybe we'll focus maybe we'll talk about that a little bit in a future episode, maybe a part two of this one. We'll have to see what the schedule is. But right now I want to focus more on on the early years of Rebovadia. Um and I want to start off by reading a letter I received a couple of weeks ago from a Jewish History Soundbites listener. I think it's appropriate um, in introducing this topic. Quote, I love your stuff. I think you should include podcasts about the Sephardic world too. Since it's called Jewish History Soundbites, Sephardic Jewish history should also be included Laanius Daiti, in my opinion. End quote. Um, so, I think that the writer of this letter is 100% correct, and uh, predominantly this Jewish history soundbite has been about not just Ashkenazim, but but modern Jewish history, and mainly in Eastern Europe, and that just happens to be my specialty, but it's definitely not on purpose, and I'm not trying to exclude anyone or any other story, so, um, of course... Uh, Sephardi Jewish history is a major component. I did one, I think, on Saloniki way back. And now, in honor of the writer of this letter, we're going to have on Rabovadia and uh, Sephardi Jewry at this point. Um, but hopefully in the future we'll have some more as well. It's definitely an important story that needs to be told. So we go back a little bit in time just to give, uh, I want to give a lot of context actually today um, of how Rabovadia fits into the picture and what he's trying to do, and and how much uh, he was successful at doing that. So, you have the expulsion of Sephardi Jewry from Spain. That's the really the uh, formative event in Sephardi Jewish history. Is and one of the one of the most important events in Jewish history is the 1492. Uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, who are very religious Catholics, they decide. They can no longer tolerate any infidels in Spain, and they sign an expulsion order, which is carried out. The Jews are given a, a choice of whether to convert or be expelled. About half convert, and the other half, approximately, is not exact numbers, are expelled. By the way, although we focus on it as a Jewish tragedy and as a major Jewish event, uh, King Ferdinand and the Queen Isabella were intolerant of infidels, in other words, any non-Catholics and any Muslims who were living in Spain, which there were quite a few, were expelled with the same expulsion order. In other words, 
it's not an expulsion of Jews per se, it's an expulsion of infidels, non-Catholics, anyone who doesn't want to convert. So it's, it's um, you know, Muslims were expelled at the same time, but we always like to focus on the Jewish story and make it a Jewish tragedy, and, and that's fine. So, so the glory of Sephardi Jewry kind of ends with the expulsion. They had been not only the predominant force in Jewish life, it was not just about rabbinic life and the great Rishonim that Sephard produced, but it was also in cultural life, also a wealthy community, a very integrated community. They're also simply in demographics and numbers. Uh, for a large period of Sephardi Jewish history, they were the majority of the Jewish people, almost up until the expulsion. Uh, they were the majority of the Jewish people. And uh, and that, that, that came to change also. So the Sephardi diaspora is spreads all over the world, and they, to a certain extent, we could say in a bit of a overgeneralization, that Sephardi Jewry never really recovered from the expulsion. And uh, the story of the last 500 years is a struggle to, to recover, to try to build new communities, and with different Levels of success. There was Amsterdam had a very strong Jewish community. There were some bright spots. There was uh, talk about Amsterdam and later in Shalim, Rebcheskio de Silva, the pre-Chodesh, one of the most important uh, halachic works written uh, in in the post uh, in the uh, in the post-expulsion era. You have the whole story of the 16th century of Tzfas, the Mekubalim of Tzfas, and of course the Beis Yosef. Rebbeis of Cairo, who he himself is one of the expellees. He's four years old when he and his parents are thrown out of Spain, and he spends a nice chunk of his life wandering, Turkey, Greece, Italy, and uh, the end of his life in, in Sfas. And in his whole chevra, all his friends in Sfas, many of, many of them are, and that whole 16th century period, many of them are Sfardim, and that's definitely a, a glorious uh, spot. So there are bright spots, the Chida. Later on, if we come closer to Rovadia, the Ben Ishchai, there were a few others, the great Jewish community in Salonika, in other parts of Eretz Yisrael, in Hebron, and other places. Um, there were strong uh, communities and and of the diaspora, of the Sephardi diaspora, but again, they, they never really recovered and never restored its former glory. On the other hand, uh, which, is part of, which is part of this story, the original assimilation um, of, of, of communities, of, of uh, large amounts of Jews, takes place by, in the Sephardi diaspora. That's a, a tragic and somewhat lesser known. I mean, the, the, the regular historiography says that, that, that uh, secularization and assimilation begins in Germany and, and by Ashkenazim in Germany in the 1700s, in the 18th century. It really begins earlier by Sephardi diaspora communities in Amsterdam itself, and to a certain extent in England, um, when, again, it's problematic when Jews are able to go back to England. It happens in stages. Some Jews go back secretly, and then Menashe ben Yisrael arranges with Oliver Cromwell to allow them back, but it's still not official. That's a whole story in itself. But in different Sephardi diaspora communities, there's an element of secularization and assimilation, and that is really the first place that it happens on a communal level, on a large-scale level. And that's part of the, the, um, 
the uh, destruction of what the expulsion caused is that because of they they were not successful completely at rebuilding uh, the glory, the former restore what it was before, and this led ultimately to some 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 level of secularization assimilation. Um, that's that's what's going on again, very very short in the Sephardi world for close to five hundred years. The Iraqi Jewish community at this time, through this time, is considered in the Sephardi world a an elite, especially an intellectual elite, yeshivas. Rabbis, it's not only Sephardi exiles from the, or descendants of Sephardi exiles in Spain, but it's actually um, natives as well. The Bavel, the Baghdad and Bavel Jewish community is one of the oldest in the world. It's not the oldest in the world at this time. And it, 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 there was a Jewish community living there. It was the predominant Jewish community living there uh, until the end of the Ga'inim era. Um, about a thousand years ago, a little more. And and it remains, there remains a smaller Jewish community, and there's an influx of Sephardi immigrants to Iraq that eventually trickle out there like they reached pretty much everywhere in the world. By the way, they even reached Eastern Europe, and many of their descendants just became Ashkenazim. And in Zamush, in Poland, there was a Sephardi Jewish community and several, quite a few different families, famous families, uh, um, claimed to be of Sephardi descent. Uh, if you look at the biography of the Ma'or V'Shemesh, Reb Kleinimus Kalman Halevi Epstein, one of the greatest leaders of Hasidus, Talmud of the Naim Melech of Lezhensk. So it says there that he's a descendant of Rabbeinu Zrachi Halevi, the Baal Hamar. Right? So, you know, it's not exactly Sephardi, it's Provence, but it's 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 that area. So you have that, you have others, uh, Baruch Halevi Epstein, which is probably the same family, the Makar Baruch, the Tartamima, the son of the Baruch HaShulchan, claimed also Sephardi descent and the title page of his famous book, Makar Baruch. Others also, I believe Shimon Peres also had some Sephardi, descended from Sephardim. So they really reached everywhere. And the Iraqi Jewish community is considered, like I said, elite um, in the intellectual sense. They have the greatest yeshivas, they produce a lot of the great rabbis, in a certain way, they're like the uh, what what today uh, uh, the way people like to look at Lita at Lithuania, the Litvish yeshivas has a certain type of whether it's true or not, it's also debatable. But a certain type of intellectual elite, um, the Beni Shchai definitely is um, Rabbi Yosef Chaim Halevi um, is definitely forms that that he's from the later era. He dies in 1909. And he is the Rav and uh, great leader and Paisik of Sephardi Jewry throughout the world. And he's the Rav in Baghdad for over 50 years. And then and Rabbi Ovadi Yosef is born in Baghdad, kind of in the shadow of the Ben Ishchai. He's born 11 years after uh, the Ben Ishchai's passing in 1920. And, and the influence of the Ben Ishchai is very strong at that point. And four years old, he leaves Baghdad. His family moves to Yerushalayim. His father had been a jeweler in Baghdad. And in the 1920s in Yerushalayim, economy is not exciting, especially in Yerushalayim itself. And he struggles. He owns a makolet, a small little grocery store. And he expects his sons 
has got he's a bunch of kids, like four or five kids, and uh, and he expects his sons to help him in the makola, and and uh, because the family is struggling and they're quite poor, and he he his his son Ovadia, who initially enrolls in the Porat Yosef Yeshiva, which was the elite yeshiva of the Sephardi world at the time. It was in the old city of Yerushalayim. still is in the old city of Yerushalayim. There's another branch in Geula. And the Rosh Yeshiva at that time was Reb Ezra Atiyah, the great Sephardi leader who was a fascinating personality, the, the Rebbe, and uh, of, uh, the one who produced basically all the Sephardi leaders of the next generation, Reb Tzien Abba Shaul, Reb Tzil Kaduri, many others. And Ravadi, of course, who he became like his son almost. And um, Rebez Ratias takes a liking to him. He sees his potential. Ravadi was a tremendous masmid. And his father insists that he come help at the Makolet. And eventually he has to leave the yeshiva. Rebez Ratias notices that he's not there. And he goes to try to convince the father to uh, allow him to stay in yeshiva. And he says, no, I need help. I need his help in the, in the, in the shop. I, my family is struggling. We don't have food to eat, and uh, we need to make a living. And I need my son's help. And the next day, Rabbi Ezra Atiyah himself shows up at the store. And he says, Kvod Harav, what are you doing here? Chacham, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm going to help you in your store. Your son has huge potential. And me, I'm okay. You know, I, I, did, I did it already. You know, the... the it's okay. I can use a couple hours a day to help in the store. If you need the help in the store, I'm here to help you. But your son, he has a lot of potential. He's got to learn. And that convinced the father. He obviously was not going to allow the great Chacham, Rabbi Ezra Atiyah, to help in his store. Atiyah, to help in his store. So Rabbi Vadi is able to go to Parat Yosef, and his brothers stay in the store, and they help with the father. And most of them actually joined the Irgun. Um... And and were active fighters in the Irgun later on. In fact, I heard an interview with one of his brothers who said that the night of Rabovadia's wedding, he was on an Irgun operation, and Rabovadia got angry at him. He said, "We have a family wedding. It's my wedding. You're my brother. I support the Irgun. I love the Irgun. I'm happy with what they're doing. But on the night of my wedding, you have to do that." So that's also an interesting uh, perspective. Now, this, this labor class background that Herbovadia has, this adds to his popularity subsequently. Um, he's, not, he's not distant from the masses. He grows up in a simple home, not in a rabbinic home, not descended from a long line of rabbis in Rosh Yeshiva. He, his father was a simple laborer, a worker, and that he may, helped him identify with the masses, and it helped the masses identify with him. And this was not the same about other Sephardi leaders, um, and, and by the way, any leaders and other and other and other sectors as well. It's a, quite a common phenomenon. And this this added to his popularity. It was his way of speech. It was a mannerism, and it was the way he was able to really relate to the needs of the people because he himself had been that. He himself had come from that background. On the other hand, his Iraqi background. He came from the city of the Beni Shchai, and from that atmosphere and the Porat Yosef, the elite, the intellectual elite of the Sephardi world, made him part of the elite. Um, he didn't come from other segments of, of the Sephardi society which were not considered the rabbinic elite um, of, of, of that world. So it really gave him the best of both worlds. That context 
created for him the best of both worlds. On the other hand, he came, he was born, and he came from the city of Chachomim, of Baghdad, of the Ben Ishchai, from that background. He learned the Parat Yosef with the elite, with the Rebbe with everyone else. On the other hand, he was not a Meyuchis, he had a labor class background, and he was a man of the people. And that combination really set the tone for him to be in the perfect place of leadership. Um, his life goals were very, very, from early on, he wanted to become a big Paisik. He had a system that he wanted to change Svardi Halacha, and it was controversial from the beginning. And, and again, today you see how his way prevailed. With all his respect to the Ben Ishchai, the Ben Ishchai paskined a lot of questions on halacha according to Kabbalah, which was very common in Sephardi culture. And Ravadia Yosef wanted to change that and go back to what he called Maran. Maran Bet Yosef. To go back to the Shulchan Aruch, to paskin everything like the Beis Yosef in the Shulchan Aruch. And, and against the Ben Ishchai. And from a young age, he was giving halacha shiur when he was a teenager, and he would speak out openly that the Ben Ishchai should not pask in this way, we should not go with the Ben Ishchai, we should go with the Beis Yosef. And it was controversial, and people asked him to stop, and people went against him. And one of the things, this is another characteristic that stayed throughout his life, is that he really could not care less what other people said. He had his way, and he was going to do it, no matter what the pressures were from outside, and he did it, and he went ahead and did it, no matter what, what other people th- said or thought or did and, and that was what he did in halacha, that was what he did in leadership, that is what eventually he did in politics. And that was, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to change the way of psak in the Sephardi community, and he, and, and he was successful at that. He wanted to become a leader in Sephardi psak, restore Sephardi minig. He wanted to make Sephardi rabbanim, including himself, in a leadership role. He did not feel that they should be subservient to Ashkenazi rabbinical leaders. This is all from early on. And most of all, like I said before, Sephardi pride, to restore the crown of glory. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one from much later in his life, um, when, when, they, when, when he really had a following, there was always a, a fight to which wealthy donor would buy him a new car. So when it first started happening, I asked him what type of car he wants, you know, and he didn't really know cars that well. But he said to them, you know, I don't want to insult the Ashkenazim, so don't buy a German car. So the guys understood the hint, so they went ahead and bought a BMW, and uh, and they bring him his beautiful Beamer, and he cuts in, and he's comfortable, and the guy asks him, the driver asks him, are you comfortable, Harav? And he says, yeah, I'm very comfortable. He says, tell me something, is this a German car? And he says, yeah. And he says, basically, in, 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 in Hebrew... He says, basically, he said, the heck with the Ashkenazim. It's comfortable. I enjoy this car. I'm keeping this car. And uh, I actually heard that from someone who verified the story with his grandson. So it's actually a true story. Another interesting story is that he printed a calendar. His son had a calendar printed. And he wrote the time for Hadlaka Sneris, for lighting the Shabbos candles on Arab Shabbos. He wrote a time that, according to the Sephardim, a few minutes before before Shkia, before sundown. And he wrote there this time, a few minutes before Shkia, Kiminha Girushalayim, as is the custom in Yerushalayim. And as we know, the the Yerushalmis, they love to call their own Mini Yerushalayim, which I would love to give a 
podcast on one day about the myth of Minig Yerushalayim that was made up over the last couple of hundred years. But the but but they claim that the Minig Yerushalayim is 40 minutes before Shkia, which is what the Ashkenazim at that time did. So they all yelled at him, how can you write it that it's Minig Yerushalayim? He said, excuse me, which community came to Yerushalayim first? Svardim came after the expulsion. We lived in Yerushalayim. Even earlier, the Ramban came to Yerushalayim. You Ashkenazim came with the Vilna Gaines Talmudim in 1815. You're newcomers here. You should all be following our customs. And this is the real Minig Yerushalayim. The Svardim and Hagim, that's the Minig Yerushalayim. And you should all be following our customs. And he, uh, he, he, he insisted when he was on the Rabbanut on allowing a heter yibum, to allow a woman to be married by, today in Ashkenazim for sure, they only do chalitza, not yibum. And he said, no, the Sephardi minig is to allow yibum, and it should be allowed, according to the Rabbanon, it should be allowed under certain circumstances to do yibum. The Sephardi customs are allowed to prevail and should prevail, and he insisted on it. In 1948, he was sent to... Uh, Egypt, to become a Dayan, head of the Bezdin in Egypt. And his three years in Egypt were very formative years in his rabbinic career. Um, he was in charge of Kashrus. He was on the Bezdin. He was like an assistant rabbi. There was a chief rabbi there, a fascinating individual who's really uh, quite a story himself, Reb Chaim Nochum Effendi, who was from Turkey very close with the government in Turkey, the Ottomans. He, had, he was an intellectual, he was a bit of a maskil, he had gone to France, his smicha was from a rabbinical school in France that was affiliated with the Alliance, and he was a progressive, and, and he, he was a, an interesting figure, and he was very diplomatic. He was very good with the government, he was very close with the king of Egypt at, the, at an earlier time, and his son Farouk kept that connection to a certain extent. And um, again, he was a liberal, and uh, his main job was to be on the diplomatic sphere to represent the Jewish community to the government and to deal with all types of issues that were rising, especially at the time of the founding of the State of Israel. The Egyptian Jewish community was in a bit of a crisis, and he had to protect them and defend them, and he had all kinds of awards that he received from different governments. He was a very worldly individual, and Rabovad Yosef had to deal with a lot of the internal issues in the Jewish community, especially in regards to Yiddishkeit, Kashrus, other things. And, and he very often was at odds with this rabbi. Rabbi was more conservative, the rabbi was more li- liberal, and essentially the rabbi was his boss. And there were other, other rabbinical figures. He wrote a lot about his years in Egypt, and it only came to light in recent years. It was considered very controversial. He wrote very sharply against the Egyptian Jewish community rabbinical r- r- rabbis. Um, he was very upset about the low level of Yiddishkeit in Egypt by the Sephardi Jewish community in Egypt. Um, very weak Yiddishkeit. He had a lot of problems with the Kashras there. Um, he f- had to fight a lot about the Kashras. He uh, talked about a sheikh who used to drive his car on Shabbos to go shecht uh, cows and, and all kinds of uh, uh, you know people who, who were considered uh, uh, religious figures but didn't wear tefillin but didn't keep Shabbos. Uh, all he, he writes about this explicitly, and it, he, he came out very embittered and very dedicated to fixing the challenges that he saw in the weakening of Yiddishkeit in the Sephardi diaspora. Um, he uh, 
he, this is really, to a certain extent, was his formative years. After two years, he was fired from his position. And it only came to light recently why he was fired. Um, was both the, he, was, he was also uh, arrested by the Egyptian government, accused of spying for Israel. And it had to do with it as well. He was forced to leave his position. But it was also the friction within the Jewish community there. And, um, and he, despite the fact that he was fired and he no longer had his rabbinical position, he, for some reason, stayed in Egypt for another year, which is uh, also not so on. Meaning, he's two years he was a rabbi, and then one year he just stayed there. And he had some sort of teaching position, but he stayed on another year, and it's also unclear why he did that. Why didn't he immediately turn, return to Eretz Yisrael at that point? But he does come back to Eretz Yisrael. He also, one of the other side aspects of, of his Egypt years is that in later years we were privileged to get a glimpse of Rebavad Yosef's very famous now photographic memory. He remembered everything he ever read, his bikiyas, his, his breath of, of, of what he knew and his knowledge and the sources he quotes, sometimes tens of sources. And, and a few times he'll say, I saw this in a Geniza in Egypt, in a Sfarim, a sefer I once saw in Egypt, and you're talking about something he saw 40, 50 years earlier. He had read once, he had never seen the sefer again, and he was quoting from it verbatim in the tshuva that he wrote. So he had this photographic memory of Sfarim, which uh, came to use when he was quoting from Sfarim that he saw during his years in Egypt. He comes back to Eretz Yisrael in 1950, it's following the War of Independence, and he joins the Rabbanut. He's a, a Rav in Yerushalayim. He almost joins the extreme Bedatz Eidacharedis Hasfaradi. It's a very not well-known Bezdin that exists, but it still exists till today. It's the equivalent of the Bedatz, the Eidacharedis, the Sfaradi one. They're also extreme, anti-voting, anti-the state of Israel. He almost joined them as a Dayan. His wife encouraged him to, but he ultimately did not. And he goes with the regular Rabbanon. He's in Yishalayim. He's a Rav in Petach Tikva. He's on the Beit Din HaGadol. Together with Rebbe Yashiv and Rebbe Goldschmidt. He was a Rav in Tel Aviv. Uh, the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv for quite a bit of time. And he had a very close relationship with Rav Shlomo Goren, who was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv at the time. And eventually he becomes the chief rabbi of the state of Israel. And in 1973, he becomes the chief rabbi of the state of Israel. As the chief rabbi, um, he is the only one who's willing to take on, tackle one of the most complicated uh, halachic issues of the time, that of the Agunis after the Yom Kippur War. The Agunis after the Yom Kippur War, the ones who they didn't know where their husbands were, they went MIA during the war, or they were killed, and they could have recognized them, all kinds of questions. And he assembled a Bezdin, and he found a heter for every single aguna. He was matir every single one. He took that on his shoulders. He was the only one who was willing to. He said, I can't leave the plight of these women. If no one else is willing to do it, then I'm going to have to do it. And in fact, there was a secular uh, 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 woman who was a, a journalist. She, this, she, she, in some article she wrote, she made fun of the fact that, that the, the halachic lamdisha loopholes that Rebavadia found were not really realistic. So she decided to test him. So she went and pretended she was someone else, and she came to him with the whole story, 
and she brought, told her that her husband was dead. Her husband was outside waiting in the car, alive and well. And she said, my husband was dead. And, and, and then she brought all kinds of proof. And what she wanted to do is, you know, she was recording or, or writing down the conversation. And she was going to write an article about how Rebavadia, based on the Lumdis, was proving that her husband was dead when, in fact, he was outside in the car because of her made-up story. And he, she, he, he, she makes up this whole story, and Rebavadia says, based on what the evidence that you tell me, your husband is dead. You can go ahead and remarry. And so the story goes. Again, it's hard to prove these stories. But even if it's not a true story, but it gives an idea of what he was looked at as the chief rabbi and what the Heter Igunas meant after the Yom Kippur War. So even if this details of the story are not true, but the idea is definitely true, she goes outside to her car, and lo and behold, uh, her husband is dead. And that's the power of halacha, that's the power of challenging someone like Arvavad Yosef, you don't want to start up with him. And he also, at that point, makes a psak, allowing, considering Jews from Ethiopia to be Jews. This is a very controversial psak, and other, especially Ashkenazi rabbis, were very unhappy with this psak. But again, he didn't care. He did what he felt was right, and he went with his way in halacha, and that's how he paskin. Um, in 1983, he retires from Israel's highest rabbinical position. He's forced to retire. The law was only 10 years. He let to be the chief rabbi. In 1983, he's at the peak of his strength. He had won the highest prize in Israel, Chatan Pras Yisrael. He had won the Israel Prize for one of the Sfarim that he wrote. He had already published many Sfarim. He was a retired chief rabbi of the state of Israel. He had done it all. And he's at the peak of his strength. He's not that old. And now what? And it's like a real downer. Like here, he's done it everything. He has an amazingly accomplished life. By the time he's 63, he's pretty much done it all. And he's only 63, completely healthy, with endless energy of what to do next. And what to do next is going to come around knocking on his door, but that's for a future episode. So this was Jewish History Soundbites with Yehudi Geber. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course, tours and trips, even Turbo Vadi's cover on, uh, on Sanhedria Jewish Cemetery. I don't know if we make it to Iraq yet, but maybe soon. And subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.